1886, author Robert Louis Stevenson published his most famous piece of literature. Many of you don't know his name, but I'm sure that almost all of you are familiar with his work. Uh, he wrote the gothic horror novella, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a short story about the brilliant Dr. Jekyll, a scientist who does experiments on the human mind, and his friend, Mr. Hyde, a brutal, ugly, violent, callous man. The narrator, who is a friend of Jekyll's, tells the story of how he met Mr. Hyde and immediately hated him. And once he discovered that Jekyll and Hyde were friends, he went to Jekyll and pleaded with him to disassociate himself with Hyde. However, we all know the twist of this story is that Hyde is Jekyll and Jekyll is Hyde. Jekyll attempted an experiment on himself, attempting to truly remove all sinfulness or iniquity from his person. But in the process, he separated himself into two persons, housed in the same body, the brilliant, good, kind Dr. Jekyll and the brutish, treacherous, evil Mr. Hyde. Now, I won't spoil the rest of the story for you if you've never read it or seen the play, but it's safe to say that this story has captured the Western imagination for a reason. For a reason. Jekyll and Hyde are a common pop culture reference and have inspired a great many characters in Western media. Perhaps most famously is Bruce Banner and the Hulk, a brilliant scientist and an experiment gone wrong that allows him to house two persons in his body, one capable of great destruction, the other capable of great innovation. Perhaps the reason that Jekyll and Hyde have become household names is that their story very clearly examines the duality of man. How can man be capable of such magnificent feats of construction and kindness and love and also capable of such hate and callousness and violence? How do we understand human evil and human goodness? Are these things divorceable or can they only exist together? Stevenson explored these themes with great wit in his novella, novella. Today we will explore some of those same themes, but with a different character. Instead of looking at Jekyll and Hyde, we will be looking at the great King Solomon. Our text today will be 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 13, but before we get there, uh, we need to talk about 1 John and then lay a groundwork for, for our text. So, in uh, our series on 1 John, we are coming up to the verses... First uh, John 2, 15 through 17. It's the text that Jordan just read. And in it, John exhorts his audience to not love the world. Let me reread the text just to refresh your memory. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. When thinking about this text and related topics, one that jumped out to me was the life of uh, Solomon. Solomon is a man who did great good and great evil. He's a biblical Jekyll and Hyde. And he did this because he loved the world and the things in the world. Whatever his flesh desired, whatever his eyes desired, he took. He was indeed proud. He loved the things that were passing away, and because of this, he suffered great consequences. If not for God's great love for David, Solomon surely would have been crushed by God. But before we can understand the tragedy of Solomon, we have to understand his rise. 
You see, the Bible paints a remarkable picture, a remarkable picture of Solomon for the first 10 chapters of the book of Kings. He's unparalleled in many regards. So let's rewind the story and hear about Solomon's meteoric rise to power and prominence. Solomon was born to some very famous parents. King David, the noblest king of Israel, who loved God with his whole heart, and Bathsheba, the wife David infamously stole from Uriah, his servant. After the death of David and Bathsheba's first son, God grants them a child named Solomon. When David grows old, he swears to Bathsheba that Solomon will be his successor, and it is announced throughout Israel, Solomon will take the throne. And in 1 Kings 2, David is dying, and from his deathbed, gives instructions to Solomon regarding his reign as king. So turn with me first to 1 Kings 2, verses 2 through 4. David on his deathbed says, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Pay attention to that last verse. If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. There are conditions for David's continued dynasty on the throne of Israel. Will his sons walk with God with all their heart? The book of Kings responds hopefully at first. First Kings 3 Verse 3 says, Solomon loved the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord. That's a statement that is not made about very many people in the Hebrew Bible. Very few receive that description, and Solomon is one of them. He loved the Lord. Yes, that's great. That's what we were hoping for. Solomon loves the Lord. Verse 3 says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So Solomon loved the Lord and walked in the way of his father. Praise God. This is great news. But he also sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. The book of Kings doesn't like this characteristic of a king. So already we see that Solomon has some growing to do. Will he succeed in putting to death his sins? And then later in this chapter, Solomon is presented with a choice by God the choice that we all wish we could be presented with. God appears to Solomon and offers him whatever he would like. Ask for it and I shall give it to you. Man, wouldn't we all love to hear that offer from God? I doubt even half of us would answer it the same way that Solomon does. He says that he has seen how God had shown David steadfast love and now Solomon was in a position to rule as king. And so he asks himself, what do I need to do that well? And in 1 Kings 3.9, he answers, he says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? He asks for discernment and understanding. He's asking for wisdom. 
This is an element of Solomon's story that we're familiar with, but it's worth thinking about for a moment. Solomon, when given an option to have anything he wants, asks for discernment and understanding in order to do his God-given job better. Do we share this heart posture? Or put another way, are the things we want most for God or for ourselves? Do I want to be wise because I want to influence others or do I want it so that I can lead well? Do I want money because I want to be able to purchase comfort or because I want to give to others generously? Do I want honor because I want to be thought well of by others or because I want my voice to carry more credibility when I speak of Christ and his love for us? Do we want these things for ourselves or for God and his glory? Now, of course, our motives are never pure, but when you consider what you want most, also ask, why do you want it? Every heavenly gift is for the building up of the body of Christ, and God desires to give them to us for that purpose. This is Solomon's heart posture and his response, and God honors him for it. Look at verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. It says, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So not only does God give him the wisdom that he asked for, but also the riches and the honor that he didn't ask for. The remainder of 1 Kings chapters 3 through 10 tells of Solomon's magnificent reign over Israel. He built incredible things, including the temple of God. He made political alliances and agreements that seemed to honor God in many respects. He accumulated incredible wealth for his kingdom, and he reigned and judged with remarkable wisdom and discernment. Turn to 1 Kings 4, verse 29 through 34. Listen to this description of Solomon at the end of this chapter. This text is incredible. The description of Solomon ties Solomon to all four of the wisdom books in the Old Testament. First Kings 4, 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. Did you hear that? People of the East? Which wisdom book contains some men from the East? It's Job. In the land of Uz, Job 1.3 describes Job as being the greatest man among all the people of the East. And Solomon is wiser than him. Verse 31, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman and Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. This verse as well as down in verse 34, shows us that Solomon was wiser than all the kings around him. Now, which book was written by a wise old king teaching other kings? It's Ecclesiastes. Then verse 32, he also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. 
Here we have the connection to both the books of Proverbs and Song of Solomon. All four wisdom books are represented in this description of Solomon. But that's not all it ties him to. Verse 33, he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Who else knew things about trees and plants and beasts and birds and reptiles and fish? Perhaps the man who named them, Adam. The description of Solomon ties him to all four wisdom books in reference to how great his wisdom is and presents him as a new Adam and a son of David. And he is a blessing to all the nations around him with his wisdom, fulfilling the Abrahamic promise. Remember that one of the central themes of the Old Testament is the seed of the woman who will come to crush the serpent's head. Some of you may remember that we just spent a couple weeks in a book called Genesis. We traced the seed from Adam down through the line of Abraham, and we've learned more about the seed since then. We know that there is going to come a man who will crush the head of the serpent and defeat death, but will be wounded in the process. We learned that he'll come from the family of Abraham and the nation of Israel. We learned that he will be a king from the tribe of Judah, and now we know he will be a son of David. And here at this point of our story, we come across Solomon, an incredibly wise king who loves God, honors his subjects, and now kings as presenting him as a new Adam. Could this be the seed to crush the serpent's head? Could this be the Messiah? But while kings has been showing us this portrait of the great wise king, there have been hints that all may not be well with Solomon. Surely there are many wonderful grand things about him and his reign over Israel, but here and there we're seeing wisps of smoke that indicate a fire and cracks in his pristine facade. And a super relevant text for this situation is Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it real quick. Moses gives instructions and prohibitions to the king uh, who will reign over Israel. Let me read it. He says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, who is one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. Strange. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So, so the king of Israel must, one, be an Israelite. Makes sense. Two, not acquire many horses. That is military power. Tanks and jets, right? He is required to depend on God for their safety. And he's specifically not supposed to go to Egypt to get more horses. Seems like a weird stipulation. Three, he must not take many wives. And four, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. We also know that it is God's desire that his people do not marry those who are not his people. And Deuteronomy says why. It will lead his heart astray. Well, back in chapter three, 
Solomon married the Pharaoh's daughter for a political alliance. Then he buys many horses in chapter 4, verse 26. And again, this time in Egypt in 1028. He spends seven years building the temple of God in 638, and then 13 years building his own palace in 7, in chapter 7. Then Solomon forces labor in chapter 9 for his building projects, and my goodness, does Solomon accumulate wealth. Most of chapter 10 is talking about how much money Solomon has. He's the only king of Israel ever said to have a navy, but not for fighting. He doesn't go to war with his navy. He just uses it to get more gold. 1 Kings 10.21 says that silver wasn't worth anything in Solomon's day because they had so much gold. All these things sound good on the surface. Political security, wealth, military power, and grand building projects. This is how you build a kingdom, right? This is how you construct an empire. But are these things that God values or things that the world values? Is this what God wants from a king or what people want from their king. The authors of Kings almost go out of their way to remark on all the ways Solomon did not live up to the standards set in Deuteronomy 17. Solomon had done so much right. Why, why wasn't he meeting this standard? That's the question ringing in our ears as we approach our text. So now that I'm like a third of the way through my sermon, let's actually look at the text in question. Let's start by reading 1 Kings 11. Verses 1 through 3. 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 3. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. The tragedy of Solomon has struck. The narrator had been leading us to put so much hope into Solomon, only to see his potential dashed upon the rocks. Solomon accumulates a harem of fantastical proportions. A thousand women in total, 700 as wives, that he married for political alliances and 300 as concubines, women for his pleasure. The size is ridiculous. It stretches the imagination. I don't even know a thousand people and Solomon knew a thousand people. <laughs> women from all corners of the earth, Moab, Ammon, and Edom from the east. Moab and Ammon were the peoples descended from Lot's daughters. Edom was the people descended from Esau. The Sidonians and the Hittites were from the north, both receiving their names from the grandsons of Noah. So let's map this out really quick. If Israel is right here and Sidon, then Assyria where the Hittites are, then Ammon, then Moab, then Edom, and then this combined with Solomon having taken a wife from Egypt means that Solomon had taken wives from every cardinal direction around Israel that wasn't water. And he loved them. You may say that Solomon loved the world. 
Did you catch that in verse 1, that Solomon loved these women? He loved them. Same word used to describe how he felt about God in chapter 3, verse 3. He loved God, but he also loved these women. He loved the world. Half his heart went to the Lord, but the other half was captured and turned astray by the world. He was a half-hearted man. He was taken by the desires of his flesh and desires of his eyes, just as 1 John 2 says, though these loves had turned his heart away from God. I read a book several years back called Desiring the Kingdom by James Smith. In it, philosopher James Smith argues that humans like to think that we are primarily rational beings. You know, I think, therefore I am. That our rationality, our reasonability is what raises us above the level of the animals. We like to think that we're better than the beasts because we can outwit them. But the true difference is not our reasoning, but our affection. We are primarily beings of love, not reason. And you see this all the time because how quickly does our reason go out the window when we love something or someone? How many of us have had relationships that were covered in red flags, but we couldn't see them because we liked the person or the feeling too much? How quickly has our culture thrown reason out the window when it comes to sex and gender and sexuality just because they like a particular lifestyle or mantra? How often do we reason out justifications for our evil and explain away our iniquity, keeping our pet sins because we love them? Our affections, our loves are, are what primarily drive us, not our, not our rationality. Smith goes on in that book to argue that we can then affect our loves by behaving in a different way, that our loves are formed and shaped by how we act and what we spend our time doing. In many ways, we are guided by what we love. But if we love the world, we're not simply at the mercy of our affections. If we were simply at the mercy of our affections, then John and Paul would not give us explicit instructions to not love the world. Aided and empowered by the Holy Spirit, Christians can affect their affections. Christians can shape their love by action. You've seen this in your own, in your own life, I'm sure. It is likely not the case that every time you pick up a Bible or pray that your affections are stirred for the Lord. But it is likely the case, in at least my own experience, that choosing to not read the Bible or pray for weeks on end will rob you of your joy in the Lord and your love for God. This truth resonates in our personal relationships as well. You may not always love your friend when you spend time with them, but you're sure not to love someone that you never see at all. In this way, our behaviors can form our affections. So we must think strategically about what we do and what we love. If we are called not to love the world, we should not spend our time with things that draw our affections to the world. I've talked to some of you about this in the past, but I have a genuinely debilitating addiction to YouTube, the website. Yes, my name is Mason and this is my confession. Whenever I say addiction, I mean using the website has been compulsory for basically my whole adolescence and my life gets worse when I use it. And I'm incapable of using it in appropriate moderation. So we're gonna call that addiction. And something I've noticed 
while trying to quit YouTube is just how quickly using it will draw my eyes away from God and to the things of the world. It robs me of joy and life. How we spend our time matters. And we've received a spirit to empower us to affect our affections. Praise God, because we would be lost without him. So when, you don't, or so when you love the world and you don't love God, look at what you're doing. How are you spending your time? You cannot expect to love someone that you do not think about. And you cannot expect to think about someone that you don't spend time with. Take a step in faith, empowered by the Spirit, and act like you love God. Your affections may follow if the Spirit wills it. Solomon's addiction was his wives, his harem. Looking to them, he took his eyes off of God and became a half-hearted king. But the depth of Solomon's depravity was not just that he had many wives, as Deuteronomy had forbidden. It goes deeper. Let's read on. 1 Kings 11, verses 4 through 8. Verses 4 through 8. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. This is where we see the depth of Solomon's depravity. This is where Hyde has taken over Jekyll's body and pushed him past his limits. It says in verse 4 that his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, the half-hearted king. He followed four gods, Ashtoreth, Milcom, Chemosh, and Molech from the various surrounding nations. Ashtoreth is similar to our conception of Aphrodite, a fertility and sex goddess related to the planet Venus. Chemosh is an underworld god relating to famine and drought and plague and death. And scholars believe that Milcom and Molech are different names of the same god. Several of you recognize the name of this god. This is the Canaanite god that demanded child sacrifice. Abomination is an apt description. Think about that. Solomon loved God, and yet his love for his wives turned his heart aside, not only to other gods, to polytheism, but to gods who governed sex and death and the murder of the innocent. He built them altars in Israel. This was a primary criteria for whether or not a king is good in the book of Kings. The book of Kings always makes mention of whether or not a king will tear down high places and altars or build them. And Solomon builds them. Now, does any of this make sense? Does any of this logically track in Solomon's mind? No, not truly. Truly, idolatry never does quite make sense. How can anyone who has seen and tasted the mercy and love of God turn aside to something so shallow? And yet we watch ourselves do it day after day. We turn aside to the gods of media, of control, of sex, of wealth, 
None of these satisfy like God does. Yet we chase after them day after day. Does it make sense to us that the wisest man, Solomon, could become such a fool? How did he not know what would become of his actions? God gave this particular person discernment and understanding beyond that of anyone else, and yet he still fell victim to the same things we all do. Why? Why? It's because you cannot outthink your sin. As much as we would like to think differently, we are not purely rational beings. We are driven more by our loves than our beliefs and ideas. And Solomon loved these women. And in loving these women, he turned away from what Proverbs calls the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. Solomon turned away from the fear of the Lord because his loves drew his eyes away from God and toward the world. It had nothing to do with how smart he was. It had everything to do with what he loved and where his eyes were pointed. This should be a cautionary tale for us because we like to think that we are better or smarter than these characters in the Bible. But they're mirror images of us, sometimes better. So let's not mince words. Solomon was smarter than every single person in this room. He may not have known everything that you know, but he was wiser than you. And it didn't save him. The number of times I've heard preachers mock biblical characters for their lack of understanding is maddening to me. We're not any better. That's the whole point of texts like this. You're not better than Solomon. I'm not better than Peter. We're not better than Thomas. We need the grace of God to give us even an ounce of understanding of his goodness and mercy. Just like Solomon, we are wise fools, men and women, full of knowledge and understanding, yet lacking the fear of the Lord. Thanks be to God that he has sent to us a helper to remind us and to deliver us from evil. Our Lord has no intention of letting us, his sheep, be snatched from his hand. And so the work of the Spirit is to keep us close to him, listening to his voice and resting in and depending on him. So rejoice, give thanks to God. He has accomplished this work of security already. Even though you and I are idolaters every day of our lives, if we truly know God, the spirit is at work in us to bring us back to Christ time and again. We do not have to fear that we may slip away. We can cling to God and rest in our powerlessness to do so perfectly. Idolatry is a deadly serious sin. It's one that always incurs the harshest punishment in the Old Testament. And here it is no different. Let's read verses 9 through 13 where God punishes Solomon for his evil. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. 
God appeared to Solomon twice in his reign. The first time to give him whatever he asked for. And the second time to respond to Solomon's prayer of dedication after he had built the temple. Both times he had given Solomon a stipulation. If you keep my statutes and walk in the way of your father David, then I will establish you and your sons on the throne of Israel forever. Solomon failed this stipulation. He did not give his whole heart to God, but let it be turned away by his wives. He did not walk in the wisdom that God had established in him. 1 John 2.17 said it well, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Solomon loved the world and the things that were passing away along with his desires. So God took away his lineage, his dynasty, his legacy from him. His son would lose the throne of Israel to one of his servants. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And David did the will of God. Not perfectly, but increasingly. So for his sake, God spared Solomon complete eradication. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, would rule the nation poorly and cause a revolt. And from then on, Solomon's lineage would reign over only one tribe, Judah, and then later the tribe of Benjamin as well. And this judgment completes the tragedy of Solomon. And that's how we know Solomon now. He's the half-hearted wise fool who loved the world and lost his legacy. At one point, he had attained such amazing heights. He was the wisest king, the wealthiest of the nations, the most powerful general. He governed rightly and loved God. He was shown to us as a new Adam, a man of Israel, the king of Judah and the son of David. Kings wanted us to question, could this be the promised seed of the woman come to defeat and crush the serpent's head? But half his heart was taken by his wives the desires of his flesh and his eyes and the pride to not fear the Lord. He became the wisest of the fools, loving the things of the world that were passing away and he lost everything for it. There's an episode in 1 Kings 10 before this text that really paints a beautiful picture of Solomon's reign. Before Solomon's heart had been drawn away by his love for the world, the queen of Sheba or the queen of the south heard about him and decided to come see if he was everything his reputation said he was. The episode is supposed to set you on edge a little because it seems like when similar things have happened in the past, we're kind of expecting, you know, the male protagonist, in this case, Solomon, to make a foolish decision and take advantage of her, pursue her when he ought not to. But instead, she comes with questions and Solomon comes with answers. He responds to every single question she has. And seeing that he lived up to his reputation, she is astonished. She brings him gifts. And in 1 Kings 10, verses 6 through 9, she makes this pronouncement. She says, and she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God 
who has delighted in you and sets you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. That's an incredible response. Not only does she recognize his wisdom, but she turns and praises God for it. And here we have a picture. Though they're not married, we have a king and a queen come together. Praising God, worshiping God side by side. This is Edenic imagery. And it's an image that a Nazarene picks up on about a thousand years later. In Matthew 12, several Pharisees come to Jesus and ask him for a sign to prove to them that he is the Messiah. And he answers them in Matthew 12, 39. He says, an evil and and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. He condemns them. This is in part because he has been exercising and healing and performing miracles of feeding for a while now. What else do they want? And as part of his condemnation of these teachers, Jesus says this in Matthew 12, verse 42. He says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Same queen of the south from 1 Kings. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of Sheba will rise up in judgment over these Pharisees because she heard from afar that Solomon was an amazing man. She tested and heard his wisdom and then praised God for what was clearly his blessing. And yet these Pharisees are standing before Jesus, the incarnate God before them. When he has taught many things and done many miracles in front of them and they still say, prove it. Jesus has come. And he is greater than Solomon. His heart is not divided, but full of love for his father. His eyes and his flesh are not drawn away by temptation, nor his mind by unrighteous pride. He abides in the Lord forever, and his wisdom is not marred by foolishness. Jesus is greater than Solomon. He is the new Adam, the man of Israel, the king of Judah, and the son of David. He is the seed of the woman come to crush the serpent's head, to defeat death, and he has done so. Jesus lived a life unmarred by the failure of Solomon or of any other biblical character. He died on a cross, crucified for the sins of the world, and now he offers a free salvation to all who believe in him. If you put your faith in Christ, you have been made right with God by King Jesus, the king greater than Solomon. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Jesus, to become a citizen of his kingdom, come talk to me or to Jared or the person that you came with after service. We'd love to talk about that with you. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and wise king. You have established your sovereign reign over us. And we rejoice to see its fruit in our day, God. We praise your name, for you have not failed where we have. We confess that we are not any better than Solomon, that our eyes are drawn away from you and our hearts are divided daily. So we also give you praise for your spirit that leads us away from the love of the world. We thank you for your son, 
whose sacrifice has allowed us to be reconciled with you. And we ask, God, that you would renew us day by day so that we may behold the glory of King Jesus more and more. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.